0: You know, I was 15 or 16 and had never actually even entered into a longhouse. I'll never forget, for the first time in my entire life, the drums. The drums started and I just remember actually, literally being shaken to my core. And I just started crying and I didn't know what was going on, I'm like 16, like would have rather been out drinking at the skate park with all my friends, like, but it was just really speaks to the power of our culture and the power of, you know, our ancestors that was coming through the drum and coming through, you know, those dancers.
1: Welcome to the Addiction Practice Pod, a podcast from the BC Centre on Substance Use about approaches to substance use care and treatment. This is a podcast for healthcare providers focused on issues in British Columbia. And this season, we'll be spotlighting Indigenous perspectives on topics around substance use and addiction. We'll focus on issues relevant for Indigenous people who use substances and discuss strength based approaches for all healthcare providers and we're recording on unceded traditional territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. The reach of this work touches on over 200 First Nations in BC. I'm David Ball, a journalist with a decade of reporting on substance use, mental health, public health policies, and Indigenous issues. In this episode, we'll be discussing themes around the toxic drug crisis and the historical and ongoing impacts of colonialism we recognize that this may bring about unpleasant feelings and emotions, so please take care while listening. In this series, we'll hear from Indigenous clinicians and people with lived experience on approaches to substance use care that work. Today, we're exploring how Indigenous harm reduction reduces the harms of colonialism. And to help me do so, I'm joined by a very experienced medical practitioner, Dr. Nolan Hopwo who is medical officer for mental health and wellness at the First Nations Health Authority and a member of the Métis Nation of Greater Victoria. Thanks so much for being here, Nolan. Thanks for having me, David. So I wondered if you could share a little bit about your previous work experience and the work that you're doing now in this area.
2: So I am trained as a psychiatrist. I've been working daily with people and families on mental health as well as addiction issues. And earlier this year, I started working as a medical officer with First Nations Health Authority, and I'm spending a lot of time focusing on the toxic drug crisis.
1: So based on your experience, Nolan, what does indigenous harm reduction mean in the context of substance use?
2: Yeah, so when we think about harm reduction on more of a, a medicalized model, we think about harm reduction as about meeting patients where they're at, in contrast to what we as doctors or society think that patients need. And it's a less of a paternalistic and it's more patient-centered focus. And part of meeting people where they're at involves being non-judgmental, as well as being curious and compassionate. So if we look at what that means on a practical level, for an example of more of the medicalized harm reduction, it may look like providing safer equipment or safer substances to use or housing and wraparound supports. And if we think about Indigenous harm reduction, it's about incorporating an Indigenous lens onto the medicalized idea about harm reduction. So it's about incorporating Inuit, First Nations, and Métis cultural and traditional practices and our knowledge in meaningful ways into a person's recovery with addiction or substance use. So a practical example of this could be, for example, involving like an elder or a knowledge keeper as part of the treatment team or part of the treatment plan.
1: Interesting. So I wanted to kind of look at the historical kind of context of Substance use care, just to kind of contrast it with what we're talking about. So I know that some of the historical programs have kind of framed addiction as a moral failing. Can you talk about that and how we can shift towards a more strength-based approach to substance use?
2: Yeah. So there are a couple of shifts in thought that we're working on educating people about. And one of them is about needing to reframe addiction and the toxic drug crisis as a population health issue rather than a criminal justice issue. So this change will allow us to think about people who use drugs as patients who are deserving of compassionate health care, just like any other person within British Columbia, rather than criminals who, for example, should be punished. And the second shift we're looking at involves a strength-based model. So for example, acknowledging that within the medical model, which is, I would say, more generally deficit-based because we're relying on identifying risk factors or problems that need to be fixed And when we address these problems, we fix the disease. But people need to remember that, for example, being Indigenous itself is not a risk factor that needs to be fixed, and rather that it's colonization and the harms that go along with colonization that are the risk factors, and that, in fact, being Indigenous means being resilient.
1: Well, that's a really good tie-in to my next question, Nolan, because today's episode is about colonialism and substance use. Can you talk about
2: how you see
1: them as being related?
2: Indigenous people are disproportionately uh, represented within the deaths in the toxic drug crisis. And one of the ways in which colonization and substance use are intertwined is the idea about trauma. So the harms of colonization are very deep-rooted within Canadian society as well as within British Columbia. And it's been going on for over 500 years And this has resulted in psychological trauma for the individual, as well as intergenerational trauma, which is the idea that trauma can be passed on from a parental generation to a a child generation or a niece and a nephew. And we know that one of the ways that people sometimes cope with trauma is substance use. So it's important to recognize that I'm talking about kind of the history of colonization, but it's also important to recognize that Colonization is not just something that happened from the past, but it is something that continues to be active and to influence and harm Indigenous people in British Columbia today. Today, we're going
1: to be speaking with Lacey Jones. She's Program Director with Kwongwem Coastal Connections, an Indigenous Harm Reduction Initiative on Coast Salish land. Nolan, are there any other key areas you'd like to explore with Lacey
2: today? I am just very interested in learning from Lacey's perspective as a First Nations, focusing on Indigenous harm reduction, and how we as practitioners can support Indigenous clients on their healing journeys, as well as support our Indigenous colleagues within the workplace. So, I'm just excited to learn from Lacey's perspective.
1: So, let's meet Lacey. She's been in the support worker field for nearly eight years and has been working in outreach for several years. She has a bachelor's and master's degrees in political science from the University of Victoria. Hi Lacey, thanks so much for taking part in this podcast.
0: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: And before we start, I'd like to introduce Dr. Hopwo, who will be part of our conversation today. He's medical officer for mental health and wellness at the First Nations Health Authority.
2: Tanchi Kia, uh, Nolan Hopwo, Deshinakashan, and Michif Nia. My name's Nolan, it's nice to meet you. I am also of mixed ancestry. I'm Chinese-Canadian on my father's side and I am Métis on my mother's side. And I also just want to acknowledge that I'm broadcasting from the Songhees and Esquimalt Nations unceded in an ancestral territory. And also, I want to acknowledge that within British Columbia, we have a very diverse makeup of Indigenous peoples, which include over 200 First Nations communities, as well as First Nations peoples from other provinces, including Inuit and Métis.
1: And I'm on Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh territories here in Vancouver. Lacey, can you introduce yourself and share a little bit about the work you're doing?
0: Sure. My ancestral name is Mama Mithitia and my English name is Lacey Jones. I come from Snenemoch Nation on my mother's side and have ties in as well to Cowichan Nation. And on my dad's side, I'm of German and Welsh ancestry. I'm a mother of two teenage daughters and I am the director for Kwam Kwam Coastal Connections, which is an Indigenous harm reduction and health program that is partnered with PIERS Victoria Resources Society. We recognize that PIERS supports folks who have formerly Are currently engaged in sex work, and Kwam Kwam is, I I guess, we're our own little entity, but being supported by Piers Victoria, and we support Indigenous folks who are using substances, precariously housed or unhoused, in Lekwungen territories. I, too, am calling in from Songhees and Esquimalt Nations territories, and often we are doing a lot of work over into a Seine Nation, so acknowledging the ancestors and the nations and the people that belong to these territories and these waters.
1: Well, that's very interesting. Personally, my family settled on Algonquin territory, and my ancestry is Irish, Scottish, and British. Earlier, we heard Nolan's understanding of Indigenous harm reduction, and we talked a bit about the more paternalistic or medicalized model of substance use care, including the kind of deficits-based approach instead of strength-based approach to that care. I'm wondering, Lacey, what does Indigenous harm reduction mean to you?
0: Yeah, so I think quite often we hear, you know, the phrase that Indigenous harm reduction is a way to reduce the harms of colonialism that Indigenous folks face. And I think on a broader scale, to me, that's, you know, what Indigenous harm reduction is and what we try to do, you know, in the work that we do every day with the street community, working to build up relationships and connect folks back to culture, you know, folks that want to connect back to ancestral culture and strength. I also see that Indigenous people have been practicing forms of actual harm reduction every day through, you know, engaging in our laws and our governance and our protocols. So thinking about the ways that we practice our culture, I can only speak from a perspective of a Coast Salish person, but I think about things that we're taught by, you know, our elders and and other knowledge keepers waking up every day with, you know, intentions and, and waking up and greeting the sun or greeting, you know, the sky and Thinking through what kind of day we're going to have, and even moving deeper into that, thinking about different cultural practices that Coast Salish people and many coastal Indigenous people practice. So going for river baths or spear baths, engaging in our longhouse and ceremony. All of these teachings and all of these acts of our culture are ways that we have actually learned from our ancestors to take care of ourselves. And especially in this day and age, you know, when we're faced with colonialism, and a lot of racism and stigma and hatred, taking care of ourselves first and foremost so that we can go out into the world and be able to, you know, be Indigenous folks and be able to uphold our culture and uphold our, our laws and our governance. And especially so that we can be healthy for our families and just on a larger whole for, you know, Indigenous communities. Um, so I think about the ways that we provide Indigenous harm reduction through Quam Coastal Connections and connecting with our relatives that are from the street community. You know, and finding ways to reduce the harms that they face as Indigenous people living in Canada, you know, experiencing colonialism every single day, as all of us as Indigenous folks do, but also recognizing, you know, that they sometimes are doubly or triply stigmatized and face this racism, you know, being Indigenous, being homeless and also using substances so finding ways for us to be able to connect back and and really it begins with building relationship you know often folks that we are working alongside have been displaced from their communities from their families from their territories so really thinking about a foundation for indigenous teachings and especially for coast salish folks so i think really yeah indigenous harm reduction is is really about connecting back to culture and, and connecting back to relationship and and finding strength in that
2: Thanks, Lacey. I also wanted to spend some time exploring the impacts of colonization, but I think it's first, it's important that we recognize that as Indigenous people, we are very resilient and uh, resistant to the harms of colonization. And I'm wondering if you can maybe give us an example of how you see resilience showing up in the community that you work with.
0: Yeah, I think... Resiliency in Indigenous people obviously goes hand in hand. We can think back to, you know, settlement like in these territories on this island and think about the actual attempt at erasure of Indigenous folks and recognizing, you know, there were so many different avenues that settlers and colonialism took to try to, you know, rid Indigenous folks actually physically from their territories and lands to take the land, obviously, for, you know, resource extraction and those things but also, you know, as time shifted and the colonial project shifted into more focusing on assimilation for indigenous folks through different avenues like the residential school systems and different institutions like the healthcare system even thinking about indian hospitals and those things and and how it actually became illegal to be indigenous. You know, if we were caught practicing, you know, inside our longhouses and and potlatching or harvesting medicine, you know, we could face criminal charges under the colonial legal system. So all of these attempts, I think the resiliency really shines through because our people are still here today, you know, still practicing our culture, still practicing. And I, I also really see resiliency within the street community, just with the fact that, you know, folks are out there surviving. And on the coast here, you know, we have this wet, harsh, damp weather. We can think of that physical aspect. But understanding, you know, folks that are just so down and out and surviving being dope sick and, you know, surviving accessing unregulated, you know, drug supply that's just so unsafe. There's still such a sense of community out there. And I think that in itself speaks to resiliency, not only for Indigenous folks, but the entirety of of street community, just recognizing in a place that can feel really hopeless, there is still that glimmer of hope because they do really depend on one another for so many things and are looking out for each other. And especially for the Indigenous folks, you know, there's even a stronger connection for them. You know, either they are related, especially on the island, recognizing that, you know, nearly 37% of the folks here on the island that are unhoused are actually from island nations. So there is actually like a lot of connection through blood and, and relation that way. But also for folks that are living unhoused in these territories that are from further east, just that connection that people hold to one another, I think, is a real shining star for resiliency.
2: Thanks, Lacey. So, you gave some examples about colonization and Indigenous peoples. For example, uh, you you spoke a little bit about Indian hospitals and how potlatches were illegal. It's important to recognize that as Indigenous people, we've been disproportionately impacted in terms of uh, health and social inequities uh, within British Columbia. I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about how these colonial institutions or colonization in general has impacted the health of Indigenous people within British Columbia.
0: Yeah, uh, when I think about the ways that our health has been impacted, you know, I look back to those large markers in um, colonial history here, especially, you know, on the island, which is something that I can relate to. Thinking, you know, pre-contact, how our nations and our communities operated, you know, for Coast Salish people, some of the foundational Forms of our, our laws and governance are are based around, as I spoke to, relationship and holding one another up, supporting one another in times of grief, in times of happiness, in times of rebirth. And with colonialism, you know, we can think about things first, like the residential school systems, you know, taking our children and and trying to sever that connection that we had. I can share of an experience in my own family with my mom, who is a residential school survivor and her nine siblings all spent a lot of their life in Port Alberni Residential School and Mission Residential School. And my mom, you know, she had, there was five older siblings and five younger. So she was in the residential school with her five younger siblings. And she would see them all, you know, when they were outside on the playground or, or, you know, when they would walk, you know, past each other, but they actually weren't allowed to talk to each other. She remembers they couldn't speak to each other. So they had made up hand signals to, you know, let each other know that they were doing okay or they weren't doing okay. And just thinking about how hard the colonial project worked to really break down that connection and that relationship that we had with one another when, you know, my mom had siblings that were probably, you know, a floor below her or just down the hall and she wasn't allowed to even say good morning or hello. Thinking about, you know, things like the Indian Hospital and obviously, again, similar to the residential school systems, just that that break in connection and relation to one another. And in both of those institutions, too, thinking about the outright denial for, you know, children and patients in the hospitals, not being able to access culture, not being able to access, you know, forms of wellness that our ancestors had been practicing for thousands of years. And then, of course, you know, leaning more forward and thinking about things like the potlatch ban and the reserve systems and all of those things and how there's just been this constant attack on trying to keep us away from everything that was meant to keep us well. Again, touching on relationship and that connection back to one another, that reciprocity I think about also, you know, in in Coast Salish cultures, a beautiful example is, in times of loss, I, I think about on the island here, you know, each reserve all the way from Wusenich, all the way up past Neneimo in Salish territory has designated people that will go and actually notify everybody, you know, in the community door by door and letting them know so-and-so from Wasainich, from Sartlip, from whatever nation there has passed. And immediately I would know, okay, I, this is my chance to give something to that family. I may not even know the, the person, I probably am familiar with the family, and I can give whatever I have on me in that moment. You know, it could be $5, $2. It could be 50 a $100. And I'm offering up, you know, that love and that care in that form of today in monetary funds to support the family so that they can focus on their grief and focus on what's needed culturally and not be worried about other pieces to laying that loved one to rest. So it just shows that relationship to one another, responsibility to one another. And then the reciprocity of that grows because I know in a time of my own grief, um, if I'm to lose somebody... Um, or I'm doing some sort of ceremonial work that folks will remember. You know, it's all recorded. So folks will remember, oh, she gave us that $50 when grandpa passed. Like, we need to push that forward and give it to her now in her time of need.
1: So, very powerful examples you shared, Lacey, and a good reminder that, you know, the survival of cultures is resistance amidst all of that context. And I think it's so important to acknowledge the thousands who are dying and have died. from the toxic drug supply and these kind of rituals of of grief and community care are something that you're practicing and are still alive and that, that seems so important. Can you talk about how addressing the harms of colonialism can help reduce the harms from substance use and the toxic drug supply in your experience?
0: Yeah, I think with Kwom Kwom Coastal Connections, our entire team, again, really focuses on relationships. So being able to connect folks back to culture. But first and foremost, you know, we need to get to know folks, we need to know where they're from. And, you know, maybe on the island, we, we often know, you know, the families they come from, we know, if they're new channels, you know, we have pulled in folks from new channels, community to do like knowledge sharing and healing work. And from the North Island, thinking about, you know, the Kwakwaka'wakw people and pulling in folks to bring in medicine that way. And then, And of course, Coast Salish people as well, leaning on Lekwungen speaking people to share spiritual work, you know, and healing and medicinal work with the street community and with Saenich Nation as well. yeah, I think the the big, the biggest thing is really getting to know folks and knowing where they're from and, you know, who their families are and being able to offer up, you know, things that are important to them in their own healing. But also, while we're doing that, really understanding that we are and doing majority of this work in Lekwungen and Wasanich people's territories. So first and foremost, it's really important to be holding up the local nations um, in the work that we're doing. And I think... A lot of the Indigenous people that we do work with and support come from, you know, Sixty Scoop or the foster care system. So a lot of them haven't even really um, been brought up in community or brought up in culture, you know. But I always think back to, you know, my uncle sharing with me all the time when I was younger about how our blood has memory, we have blood memory. And thinking about, you know, how our culture and our ancestors are just so deeply embedded in our DNA. So for folks who... May not even really you know have never grown up in community or culture may not even really know what they need with regards to you know healing and being together as indigenous folks i think it is deep down within their blood and to be able to you know bring that to light is really powerful for folks and by you know building that family and that community is a a really powerful way to combat the toxic you know drug crisis and and for folks you know who are often you know again, facing that stigma and that racism and trying to use quietly alone. I think our team really focuses on offering harm reduction and not, you know, stigmatizing if folks, you know, if we're sitting with people and they need to take a hoot or need to, you know, do what they need to do in order to feel a bit better in that moment, there's no stigma or shame attached to that. So obviously, you know, as a number one piece, they aren't using alone. But in those moments too, we're strengthening relationship with them, right? And then the next step is, you know, pulling them into culture. You know, we offer large cultural events around the city where we bring, you know, you know, six drummers sometimes at a time, elders coming, cedar brushers come. We share our ancestral coastal food. So bringing in, you know, thinking about the wellness and those pieces that come from engaging and eating, you know, our ancestral food, we're able to find strength and healing in culture. And, you know, in those moments, we're able to combat this overdose crisis by coming together.
1: You mentioned stigma and some of the barriers that people can face accessing culture. I'm wondering if you could talk a bit more about why that's so important and how how you actually do that to get make sure that people have that access and that you've destigmatized substance use and and people's choices.
0: Yeah, again we can look back to, you know, colonialism and the big old Catholic Church and thinking about, you know, those Christian values that have really seeped into our communities, so Thinking about, you know, the ideas of abstinence, you know, when it comes to no sex before marriage, don't drink, all of those things that kind of fall into those Christian norms, you know, have really seeped into, into our communities. So often a lot of, not a lot, but I would say, you know, it's often in communities, folks have very strong ideas about people not accessing culture because of values based on abstinence. So, you know, not being able to engage in certain things because folks are drinking You know, because people have been so traumatized in our communities by substances and by alcohol and often, you know, there can be a little bit of gatekeeping there. You know, folks not wanting to share that medicine and share those teachings if folks are under the influence. And then folks that are often using and living at home in their communities, sometimes, you know, there's that shame within the families as well. So, you know, they're pushed out of their families, they're pushed off of, you know, out of their territories and communities. So being able to have a space carved out in the downtown core, you know, for all Indigenous folks. And and we always invite non-Indigenous people into this work as well. But having a space carved out that is safe for them to access culture and to access, you know, those governance and our teachings to bring healing is so important. And to find folks who are, you know knowledge keepers and, and folks who share medicine, who are safe for the street community to feel good about going to, and, and knowing that they're not gonna face stigma and they're not gonna be turned away because maybe you know they are under the influence or they've you know had a, a hit of something before they came to see us.
1: That's really powerful. You mentioned that connection to culture is such an important aspect of the work you're doing in harm reduction. Can you share any specific example from the Coast Salish cultures that you're familiar with? Maybe some personal experience about how this has actually really helped people in your field?
0: Yeah, I I think, as I shared earlier, you know, my mom and and my entire family are residential school survivors. My grandma and my grandpa are both residential school and day school survivors. And also my grandma was in the Indian hospital. So there was a lot of attempt to break down and, and to pull our family away from engaging in teachings and engaging in our culture and our governance. So I was never actually raised up in the longhouse and my mom actually never even took me into the longhouse. And I think often my mom too had a bit of fear around our culture because it was so embedded into her and and that you know our culture was evil, our culture was not safe you know from residential school. And like a lot of indigenous folks in Canada we grew up you know with a lot of anger and dysfunction and and other pieces you know that led to trauma obviously in our lives. And as I got older and became a teenager, I started drinking heavily and, you know, using once in a while, using just cocaine and things like that. But I was drinking really heavily. I was, you know, out of my home. My mom told me to leave at about 16. So I was kind of just couch surfing and partying and drinking. And I think obviously for main reasons, just to cover up, you know, pain and trauma. But as I got older and I look back now, I really realized that. Another piece of that was that overuse of alcohol was to actually cover up, I think, a pain that I, like an emptiness that I had inside of me. So I remember my mom had gone back to school when I was a teenager and had finished a degree in education and they had done a grad ceremony inside the longhouse in Songhees for them. And that was the first time I stepped foot into a big house. So I went in, sat down, and, you know, we were all dressed up for my mom's grad. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. You know, I was probably at that point 15 or 16 and had never actually even entered into a longhouse. I'll never forget for the first time in my entire life, like the drums. The drums started, and I just remember actually literally being shaken to my core. Like I got actually really emotional. And then some of our really sacred dancers came out in regalia and I was just like so moved. And I think I was so young and I just started crying and I I didn't know what was going on. I'm like 16, like I would have probably, you know, would have rather been out drinking at the skate park with all my friends, like, but it was just really speaks to that, the power of our culture and the power of, you know, our ancestors that was coming through the drum and coming through, you know, those dancers. So that was my first kind of connection back to culture. And I didn't really think much of it. Like, I kind of wiped the tears off my face. And I was like, oh, like, get it together, Lacey, what's going on? So we went through the rest of the day. And that was, I hadn't really connected back after that. That was just kind of a blip in, like, you know, that those years. And I, I continued on with the heavy drinking and, and partying and all of that until my oldest daughter and as they got older, I really started to understand more about colonialism. I remember thinking my mom had actually never even spoken to me about residential schools and nobody in our family spoke about it. I don't even think I really heard about them until I was about 14 or 15. So I started really to understand, which is super ironic, but I, I started attending college at Camosun. And I, it was funny because I went to this Western institution and started to learn about how my family and myself was so impacted. So as, uh, you know, I had my kids and I started raising them, I wanted them to have a different experience and to be able to experience the power of our ancestors. So I started bringing them into our longhouse and, yeah, I look back today and I just look, think back to that young teenage girl and just how powerful that was, that first experience for me. And often, you know, I hear our elders talk about, you know, we have a hole in like the pit of our stomachs or in our hearts and, and that's what our, you know, our culture and our, the power of our ancestors really fills.
1: What are some steps that healthcare practitioners might take towards decolonizing their harm reduction in practice?
0: I think starting with if people want to start decolonizing, you need to go all in or don't go in, you know. I think by putting your toe in the water, it can actually cause more harm, not only to folks that you're serving, but also to people that you're calling on to support, you know, you in making these shifts in your practice or in your programming. Also relationship. I think a lot of things I always feel like I am repetitive but relationship is just is so big for our people and especially when you know as a non-indigenous person or you know if you're a white medical practitioner understanding that there is a lot of distrust naturally for folks so you know thinking for myself my grandma was in Indian hospitals and even though my I myself have never you know been in an Indian hospital and um, there's still, you know, that distrust that is, you know, passed down generationally. So understanding that building relationship and trust with folks is so important. Um, I shared a bit about as well, getting to know people, where are they from, you know, and understanding what are teachings and what cultural practices are important to folks from, you know, different nations. I think, too, thinking about, you know, connecting with local friendship centers and if it's a possible with local nations and better understanding, you know, the different programming and and health and wellness programs that are out there for folks. But it's also important to do this in a way that's not going to, you know, bring more harm, you know, to your patient or, or to that person you're supporting and just thinking about those pieces too and just being careful in the way that, that you are offering up those pieces. And I think by building that relationship and really getting to know that person first and foremost is a great way to kind of lean in and, and find out, you know, how you can start gently offering these other other outlets really And then I think about, you know, if you're running like health and wellness programming as well, I think the ultimate way to offer up that space is to really focus on offering Indigenous-led projects. So like, you know, you could be a non-Indigenous doctor, but finding folks who are able to really to bring in, you know, valuable teachings in those things and really being okay with trusting Indigenous folks who are coming in to lead those projects. Um, In Kwam Kwam, we also have a health program. So we have an Indigenous street nurse that's out there offering the physical aspects of health care that works alongside an Indigenous culture and wellness worker. You know, so she's there to offer cedar brushing and smudging and arrange folks to go for river baths. So it's just thinking about ways to combine, I think, Western and Indigenous practice and being committed to actually compensating people to come in and you know see how your practice is running or see how your program is running and then of course bringing in Indigenous folks too to do the work but not putting all of that work on one or two coordinators to decolonize your entire practice or program or organization.
1: Those are some really great practical examples so thank you so much Lacey and we really appreciate you joining us today. It's been powerful, informative. I wanted to thank you especially for sharing your own journey and the amazing work that Kwam Kwam is doing. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Thank you, Lacey. I thought it was very powerful, the personal experiences and and family kind of uh, narratives that you provided in helping us understand being Indigenous and the effects of colonization. And so we hold up our hands to you for the work that you're doing. I, I know at times it can be difficult, but it is extremely important work. So we hold up our hands to you and your colleagues, Lacey.
1: Nolan, that was such a powerful conversation. Anything that you take away from it that you really feel like shone out to you?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think Lacey did a a good job of explaining or maybe highlighting that colonization spent a, a long time trying to dismantle the Indigenous culture and belief systems, but that Indigenous people are quite resistant and resilient, and that is important to remember.
1: For me, one of the takeaways was just how beautiful the cultural work they're doing is, like very opposite to the medicalized model we discussed at the start of the show. It is in and of itself such a good thing to offer anyone that connection to culture, that access, but especially to people who have so many barriers to accessing it.
2: Yeah, I think it sounds like they spend a lot of time getting to know the person as well as their family backgrounds, and I think that is important in being able to provide wraparound care and care that can be effective and personalized.
1: We end every episode of this podcast by sharing three clinical pearls of wisdom that we'd like listeners to remember. Here are Nolan's three pearls from today's episode.
2: First, Indigenous-led projects need to be supported As practitioners, it's important to acknowledge that we are in positions of power and influence within the medical system, and that we have the opportunity to use our privilege to amplify the voices of our Indigenous colleagues and their programming. Secondly, the harms of colonization are complex, but learning about colonization is important in better understanding Indigenous peoples within our practices. I invite people to learn about what colonization looked like from a broad Canadian perspective. I also invite practitioners to learn about the more localized history of colonization. For example, you could ask yourself, where was the closest Indian residential school? And you could spend time learning about its history. The third clinical pearl is, being Indigenous is a strength. As practitioners, we need to be open to the idea that our westernized and medicalized models of thinking, which at times focus on deficits, can be harmful. Once we start to think about First Nations, Inuit, and Métis patients, families, and communities as coming from a place of strength, it allows us to see that Indigenous cultures, teachings, and knowledge are an integral part of the healing process. It allows us to ask ourselves the question, how can I incorporate Indigenous strengths into the care I provide?
1: Thanks so much, Nolan. It's been brilliant hosting today's episode
2: with you. Thank you for having me, David. It has been a pleasure to learn from Lacey and to work with you as well.
1: If you're interested in learning more about Indigenous harm reduction and abstinence perspectives, you can find some additional resources in the show notes. Help us to create the best possible podcast by filling out our short survey. Just click the link to it in our show notes. This podcast comes from the BC Centre on Substance Use, with production from Cited Media. We're grateful for the time and expertise shared by Indigenous partners and collaborators related to producing this season. A special thank you to the Indigenous Initiatives team at the BC CSU for their guidance and support. This programme was made possible through financial contributions from the BC Ministry of Health and BC Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions with founding support from Doctors of BC and Health Canada. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of these organizations. I'm David Ball. Thank you so much for listening, and see you next time.